Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volby, and this is the Parsha Podcast. I am coming to you again from Houston, Texas, from the Torch Center. I hope you and your family are doing well and staying safe. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. If you emailed me recently, I may have responded with a particularly verbose reply. And the reason for that is because I actually learned a new way of responding to emails. It used to be that I would have to type them. And I'm a little bit of a slow and inconsistent typist. So I would frequently try to respond with as few words as possible. But I just recently discovered, and maybe everyone knows this, that you could actually dictate to the phone. And I think we've tried this in the past and the technology wasn't quite there. But i just been trying it recently and it is fantastic. So I'm able to reply with very wordy emails because I'm actually speaking into the phone and I'm saying a lot more than I would say if I was just typing it. So please forgive if I'm responding to your email with a long and wordy and verbose reply. I'm just testing out the new technology. But again, my email address is rabbiwalbergeman.com. Now this week is Parshas Naso for most people. If you happen to have the great fortune of living in the Holy Land, living in Israel, then this week is not Parshas Naso, this week is Parshas Mahaloscha. Now how, pray tell, is there a difference, is there a discrepancy between the Jews living in Israel and the Jews living in the Diaspora? How come we are off one week? And that's a great question. And the answer is that last week in the Diaspora, we had the festival of Shavuos, and that was Friday and Saturday and Shabbos. And the rule is that whenever there is a festival that coincides with Shabbos, that Shabbos or that Parsha is not read on that particular Shabbos. It is pushed off to the following week. In Israel, there's only one day of the festival of Shavuos. Therefore, they had the festival on Friday. And Shabbos, even though it's adjacent to Friday, Shabbos was a regular Shabbos. So this past Shabbos was Parshas Naso in Israel and us living in the diaspora. It was the second day of Shavuos because we celebrate an extra day of the festival. And therefore, we have this week is Parshas Naso while in Israel. It is Parshas Baaloscha. And we're going to be off. The schedule is going to be off for a little bit. I believe that the end of the book of Bamidbar is when we get back on page. We're going to have a double Parsha to catch up, and the rest of the people living in Israel are going to have a single parsha, and we will once again be on the same page. Now, today's subject is very important, and I would argue it could potentially be life-changing, and I don't say that lightly. And it's going to be a continuation of the last Parsha podcast episode that we did on Parsha by Midbar, and the idea that we elaborated upon that there are 600,000 letters in the Torah— And that corresponds to the 600,000 Jews who were at Sinai. And I want to take this to kind of the next logical step. And I think we might have mentioned it briefly in that episode. It was certainly implied. Moshe is counting the Jewish people. And he's uplifting each one of the people. And the number, the final tally is 600,000. And he counts the letters in the Torah. And there's also 600,000 letters in the Torah. And what's implied by that is, is that Moshe was able to identify every Jew 
to know the root of their soul and to know which letter they are identified with, i.e., which particular mission does every person have? I think this is a powerful and profound idea, and certainly one that warrants being explored more deeply. Every person is different. Everyone has different skills, different qualities, of course, different flaws, different circumstances of their life, their upbringing, the background, the parents, the family, different assets. Everyone's different. We say that everyone is different because everyone has a different job, a different mission, a different task, and the Almighty tailors a person's life in a way that they're going to be able to fulfill their mission. If the Almighty created me as a once-in-a-history creation, there never was, there never will be another person exactly like me, then necessarily I have a once-in-history role to play, a once-in-history mission to fulfill, a job, a task to get done. So the subtext of the idea that there's 600,000 Jews and there's 600,000 letters is that every Jew has his particular letter that they are associated with. And that highlights the fact that all the letters are different. That highlights that every person has their particular role to fulfill. But what is my mission? Why was I placed on this earth? What does the Almighty expect of me? Nay, demand of me. That's arguably the most important question of our lives. Why are we here? What are we living for? And I believe that this is the Parsha, Parsha's Nusso, that addresses this subject and perhaps offers a glimpse on how to answer those questions. So the Parsha starts off, it's a continuation of the end of Parsha's Bab Midbar. It's counting the work age Levites, not the Levites in general, but the work age Levites. And it's delineating the particular responsibilities that they have, the Levites have, in the transportation of the Mishkan and its vessels. So the very last item of Parshas Bamidbar was the family of Kahas. There's three Levite families, Gershon, Kehas, and Merari. So last week I talked about the family of Kahas and what were the precise responsibilities of the family of Kehas, what they had to transport. And this week it begins with the family of Gershon and subsequently the family of Merari. And we're told that every Levi was given a specific item to carry. They were given their own mission to the exclusion of all other missions. And the Ramban, in his commentary, this is Parsha, he emphasizes this point again and again and again. The Parsha begins with the duties of the family of Gershon. And they're given, amongst other things, they have to carry the cloth covers of the tabernacle, the screen for the entrance. And we read in the seventh verse of the Parsha, according to the word of Aaron and his sons, shall be the work of the sons of the Gershonites, their entire burden and their entire work. You shall appoint their entire burden as their charge. So Aaron, of course, and his sons, they are the captains of the whole process, of the whole program. And they are assigning the family of Gershon with their particular job, that is assigned by the words of Aaron and his sons. And the Rabban explains that Aaron and Aaron's sons, they are appointing the Gershonites with their job. And they tell them, you, you particular Levite from the family of Gershon, you're in charge. You are the steward of this and this particular responsibility. And in general, 
we're told that the Levites, there's two general categories. There are the ushers, the doormen, the people who are in charge of the maintenance of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, subsequently the temple. And there are also the singers who enhance the experience of the Mishkan with their songs. Moreover, they're in charge of the transportation. So again, the Ramban is highlighting the fact that every Levite has a particular role to the exclusion of all others. Their responsibilities were individualized and they were tailor-made. Next, we have the family of Mirari, and they're in charge with the beams and the various hardware of the Mishkan. And we read in verse 32, the pillars of the courtyard all around and their sockets, the peds, the ropes for the utensil, all their work, you should appoint them by name to the utensils that they carry on their watch. So the Ramban is asking the question, why are they being appointed by name? What is being highlighted when we're told that they are appointed by name? So again, he highlights this point. It's not that the family of Murari in general, they're in charge of transportation of the beams, of the bars, of the pillars of the tabernacle. Oh no. Every individual is given a particular beam, a particular bar, a particular pillar. This is your job. You're in charge of transportation of this. And it's mentioned over here, says the Ramban, because the family of Merari, they have the heaviest items to transport, and therefore there is an incentive or there's a concern that maybe someone may pawn it off or maybe try to get help from someone else to aid them in their transportation, and therefore... It's told specifically that it's done by name. No, you, Mr. So-and-so Levite, this particular beam is yours, and you cannot give it to anyone else, even if it is heavy. And again, in verse 49, at the end of this entire part of the narrative, the Rabban notes that the three Levite families are counted both as families and again as individuals, because each had their specific duties and they couldn't outsource it to anyone else. Then he brings a very shocking teaching from the Midrash. The Midrash says that a Levite is not allowed to help their fellow Levite with their job. And the Midrash tells a story of one of the great sages at the very end of the temple, the second temple era. He saw a fellow sage, who both of them were Levites, he saw him needing some help with locking the doors. Again, they were in charge of the doors, the maintenance of the of the temple. And uh, the one of the Levites says, okay, I want to come help you. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, one of the great sages, he comes over to Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada and says to him, okay, I want to help you with your job. And he says to him, no, go back to where you came from. You are liable to be executed because you are part of the singing class of the Levites and I am part of the Maintenance, the, 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 the ushers, the door people of the Levites. This is a shocking teaching. The Midrash is telling us that if there is a Levite who steps out of the particular job that they're given, and they try to help one of the fellow Levites with a job that the other Levites are given, that is something which is akin to a capital punishment. What's the sin? Why is it so severe to help a fellow Levite who's struggling with their job? After all, both of them were Levites. It's not like this is a foreigner, a regular Israelite trying to do something that's assigned for Levites. No, this is the Levites themselves broken down with different responsibilities. And if one person encroaches on the other person's job, in the words of the Midrash, that is akin, or that's close to, 
a capital offense. What is so severe about that? I think there's a deep insight here. Why am I alive? Why do I exist? Why is there a creation called me that never existed before and it's never going to exist again? It's only because I have my own mission, my own particular mission, that only I could do. And when someone ignores their own mission and focuses on someone else's mission, what are they declaring? They're declaring that they themselves have no mission of their own. Moreover, that they could fulfill someone else's mission. They are playing with God's game, so to speak. The Almighty created me as me, you as you, this great Rabbi Yochanan as Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yeshua as Rabbi Yeshua, and each one of them is assigned a particular role by God. And the second someone tries to encroach, either to ignore their own job or to encroach on someone else's job, they're in fact declaring that they have no reason to live. There's no reason why I'm different, the reason why I'm unique. They might didn't create me for my job, because after all, I'm, not, I'm ignoring my job, I'm shirking my job, I'm focusing on yours. Therefore, by someone shirking responsibility and not realizing that every person is assigned a particular job that only they can do, in effect, they are making an argument that they have no reason to exist. And, of course, that's a very shocking statement, but it's a very powerful idea. The Almighty created me with my particular set of skills and abilities to do my particular job that only I can fulfill. And it's my imperative to discover what that job is and to fulfill it. So this theme is found at the beginning of the parsha, but it's also found at the end of the parsha. At the end of the parsha, the longest chapter in the whole Torah, chapter 7 of the book of Numbers, it's telling us what happened in the days following the inauguration of the Mishkan. Mishkan's inaugurated, first day of Nisan. And for the next 12 days, the heads of the 12 tribes brought various tributes and gifts in successive days. And we're told, section after section, paragraph after paragraph, the precise gifts brought by the heads of the tribe. And what is so striking is that each head of the tribe brought the same gift, yet it is repeated paragraph after paragraph. And we know the Torah is very stimpy with its words. It doesn't add more words than necessary Yet it finds the need to repeat, almost verbatim, the identical gift brought by the Nassim, brought by the heads of the tribes, in the days following the inauguration. So the Ramban gives an answer. He says that each one of these heads of the tribe, even though it appears to be the same gift, each one of them was unique. Each one of them had their own reasons why they brought this particular gift. Each one of them understood what their tribe represents. Each one of them had a tradition going back to Jacob as to what role their particular tribe is going to play, what's expected of them. And they channeled those ideas into their tribute. So even though the net result was the same, and therefore when we look at it superficially, it appears that everyone brought the same gift. No, everyone bought a very different gift because everyone had their own reasons for bringing it that were tailored for their particular tribe and what their tribe represents. So he begins, the first tribe was the tribe of Judah. And the Rabban goes through what was the meaning behind this gift. It references Solomon and and King Messiah and it 
focuses on the 70 nations that the tribe of Judah, which represents the monarchy, is going to be in charge. And the ladle had a weight of 10 corresponding to the 10 generations from Peretz to David. And it references Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Tamar and David and Solomon, the 15 kings of Judah corresponding to the 15 sacrifices. Nachshon, the head of the tribe of Judah, he thought through what his tribe represents, and he channeled that into his sacrifice, his offering, his tribute. And similarly, on the second day, the tribe of Yisachar and the head of the tribe of Yisachar brought their particular offering, and it was identical, but for an entirely different reason. And similarly, Zavulon and the rest of them, the rest of the tribes, he goes through, the rest of the tribes, they all brought it based upon what their tribe represents. Again, we see this idea that these are not generic gifts. Each one understood what their particular mission is and tailored their gift to reflect that. This is the idea. Everyone is unique. Everyone has a unique role. And everyone has to identify what that role is and try to fulfill it. The Mishnah tells us, very famous Mishnah, every person has to say, Chayav Adam Lomar, a person is obligated to say, Bishvili Nivra Ha'olam, the world was created for me. I'm not generic. I'm unique. I'm a once-in-history phenomena. And that means that there is a mission entrusted to me and to me and no one else. And therefore, the whole world depends upon me because there's something that only I can do. My grandfather was very fond of quoting the beginning of Mesila Sisharim, of Path of the Just, Way of the Upright, the classic work by Ramchal. He begins his work that the foundation of piety and the root of perfect service of God is that a person must know what their mission is, what their responsibility is in their world. And my grandfather would always highlight the nuance of this particular sentence. It's not enough for us to say what's mankind's, humanity's job in the world. What do we collectively as a species need to do? Ma chovoso ba'olamo. What is your particular job in your particular world? You live in your own world. The world's created for you. You are unique and there's a job that's only yours and if you want to become a pious person, if you want a perfect service of God, it's not enough to live generically. You have to identify what is your role, what's your job in your world, and you have to figure out how to do that. My grandfather talked about this idea a lot, how you have your own mission. There's a reason why you were put in this world. You have a job. You have tasks. You have responsibility to accomplish something, something unique. And when someone is judged after they pass, the judgment is not only going to be on did someone do 613 mitzvahs, did someone fulfill the responsibilities that are uniform to all Jews. The judgment is also going to be about did you understand why you were unique and what you and you only had to fulfill. My grandfather would quote a very scary teaching that talks about after someone dies, angels attack him, scary angels and they start whipping him with metal chains, and they're demanding to know what is his name. What's your name? And the person's not going to know their name. Now, the question is, of course, everyone knows their name. How do you not know your name? Even if you're asleep and someone shakes you up in the middle of a dream, you still remember your name. 
the idea that this very serene teaching is conveyed is that your name represents your job in your world, your responsibility, your unique contribution to the world. And if you have not fulfilled that, if you've lived a generic life, you could be very proficient in matters of religion. You could be even fastidious in halacha. But if you don't know why you were placed on this earth, you don't know your name, you may be in big trouble. It's a very scary idea. There's many sources in Jewish literature about that. For example, the Midrash tells us that if there's a Torah scholar who dies, there is no replacement. There's no exchange for that. And the word that it uses is timura, which means an exchange that applies in the laws of sacrifice. If I have a sacrifice, I could apply the holiness, so to speak, that's on this particular sacrifice. I could confer that to a different animal. There's almost like an even exchange that could happen. Torah scholars are peerless because a Torah scholar is someone who's not only doing what's required on everyone, but someone who has fulfilled their own particular mission and thus by definition is not generic and therefore there is no replacement, there is no exchange. So in our parsha and throughout Jewish literature, we see that it's incumbent upon a person to figure out what is their job. Of course, the tormenting question is, how exactly do we find our mission? If you have Aaron, Aaron's sons, you have Moshe, you have God directing you, this is your beam, this is your vessel, this is your cover. If you're handed your mission on a silver platter, well, then you're good. And you know what? Even if there were prophets, the Gona Vilna used to say that when prophecy existed amongst the Jewish people, the role of the prophet the contribution of the prophet was this exact point. Every person that would have an audience with the prophet, the prophet would pinpoint based upon their vision that they have into your soul and where your soul comes from and why your soul is unique. They would be able to identify what's your job. You would know exactly what it is on a specific level, on a unique level, on an individual level that you need to do in your life. Today we no longer have prophets. We don't have Moshe and Aaron being able to uplift everyone and say, okay, this is your soul of the 600,000. And this is your letter of the 600,000, i.e. your responsibility, your uniqueness. We don't have that. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to discover what it is that we're living for? It's a very important question. And you know what? Truthfully, This is probably something that we each need to discover on our own. And I want to add that the great Rabbi Avram Grudzinski, who incidentally happens to be my great-grandfather, he was the head of the Slabatri Yeshiva and was killed in the Holocaust, he has an entire treatise on how to get an answer to this question. And my grandfather, in his great volume, Aleishur, he has an entire section dedicated to this question. It's a very important question. And anyone who's serious about their spiritual life and even their spiritual afterlife has to grapple with this question. So to give an answer like that, unless you're a prophet, you can't do that. But I do believe that our Parsha also contains clues 
as to how exactly go about doing that. We believe that the Almighty created each one of us as an individual with an individual responsibility. But we also believe that the Almighty is going to send us messages, is going to give us insight into what exactly is our job. So, for example, in the morning prayers, we say two blessings that are earth-shattering blessings. Hamechin mitzadei daver. We're thanking God who prepares the footsteps of man. The footsteps of man, the journey, the odyssey that we're all supposed to undertake, the Almighty prepares that. The Almighty arranges that. The Almighty orchestrates that. The Almighty is going to ensure that we're going to be positioned in a way to be able to find out, to discover what it is our job in this world. There's a second blessing that we say every morning, She'asa li kol tzarki. That God made for me everything that I need. I need things. Why do I need things? Because I have a job. What's my job? The Almighty knows. But the Almighty also gives us the tools to discover and to fulfill what it is our job. That's in general. The Almighty sends us messages. But in our Parsha, we see, I think, a complete example of how that works. The Baal Shem Tov of Blessed Memory used to say that the entire world is like a mirror. Meaning, when you see something externally, outside of you, you're supposed to absorb that. You're supposed to digest that internally. You're supposed to kind of have the world reflect back at you. And in our parsha, we see an example. We have the Sota, the suspected adulteress, and the Nazir. And these two subjects, they're seemingly unrelated, but they're juxtaposed both in the Torah in our parsha, and if you look at the volume of Talmud, of Sota, of the suspected adulteress, and Nazir, the person who accepts the vow to become a Nazir, to refrain from wine and other grape derivatives, to not come into contact with dead people, and to not cut their hair for a minimum of 30 days, those two volumes in Talmud are also juxtaposed to each other. And the Talmud asks the question, I think it's quoted by Rashi in our parsha, why are these two seemingly unrelated portions of Torah why are they juxtaposed? And the answer says the Talmud, If someone sees a sota, a suspected adulteress, in her disgrace, he should make himself a nazir from wine. If you see someone else that has behaved or potentially behaved in a morally deficient manner, committed adultery, perhaps, you have to look internally and you have to say, that could potentially happen to me too. And therefore, you have to say, okay, you know what? I have to guard myself from potentially falling into the same trap. And therefore, we know that wine and alcohol, they're sometimes laying fertile grounds for sin. And therefore, we have to abstain from wine and alcohol for 30 days. Very deep insight here. What the Talmud's telling us is that if someone happens to chance upon a sota, to chance upon a suspected adulteress, that is not by chance. That's not a coincidence that you happen to be in the temple when they brought in a suspected adulteress. You happen to have seen it randomly. Oh, no. What the Talmud is telling us is that if you happen to be there, it's not by chance at all. It's the Almighty sending you a message. The Almighty sending you a message when you see this flaw in others, 
this is actually a flaw in you or this is a potential flaw. And therefore, you better shore up this part of your life. And you have to make sure that, that, that you don't fall into the same trap because you're close. And therefore, you're supposed to right away undertake an intense 30-day, like a boot camp, an immersion in holiness. And the commentaries tell us that a Nazir, a lot of what they do is very similar to what a high priest, the Kohen Gadol, does, the highest, holiest, most spiritual person in the nation. And this is going to be a counterweight to the person potentially sinning and committing adultery of their own. Very, very deep insight here. You see a flaw in someone else? It's actually a message from God that that's a flaw that you too have? And right away, you're supposed to respond by taking steps to ensure that that particular vulnerability is plugged up. We see an example here. The Almighty sent a message to the Nazir and said to him, this is something that you particularly need to focus on? It's not one of the 613 mitzvahs per se. It's not one of the generic responsibilities of, of all Jews. It's not one of them to abstain from wine. But you need to do it. That's a particular requirement on you based upon who you are, what, why you're here, what you need to fix, what you need to rectify. Another example in our parsha, perhaps, along these lines. We have the Nassim, the heads of the tribe. They bring actually two gifts in our parsha. After everything's assembled, we know the Jewish people are soon going to depart from Sinai. And how are they going to transport all of the materials? So the heads of the tribe actually contribute oxen and wagons to the coffers of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, for the transportation of the Mishkan. And right afterwards, they bring these 12 days of tributes for the inauguration. Now Rashi tells us that during the initial fundraising drive for the materials needed to establish the Mishkan, the Nasim dithered. They tarried. They said, you know what, we're going to wait until everyone else gives and we'll make up the difference. And they failed to appreciate the generosity, the outpouring of generosity that the nation would respond to the fundraising drive. And consequently, by the time everything was over, there was nothing left to donate. And therefore, six months later, when it's time to inaugurate the Mishkan, they say, right away, we're interested we're going to jump in, we're going to donate first. And therefore, they donated the oxen and the wagons, and then they donated the particular tributes of the 12 successive days. Now, when it talks about, in the end of the Book of Exodus, the gifts for the, or the donations for the erection of the tabernacle, and it talks about the heads of the tribes, it deducts a letter from their name. We've spoken about this in the past. They are given criticism for their lack of generosity and lack of taking initiative. So here we see another example of this idea. We have heads of tribes that they fail to display leadership to take initiative during the original fundraising call. And you know what? They're rebuked. They're reprimanded. 
a letter is deducted from their name. But they make adjustments. They fail, but they take the lesson to heart and they adapt and they improve. And the next opportunity comes and you know what? They're a changed person. Why? Because they took the lesson from God. God sent them a lesson that this is an area where you particularly need to focus on. And the next opportunity to donate, they jump ahead before even being prompted to do so. And Rashi adds, if you read Rashi in chapter 7, verse 10, it's a very interesting Rashi. Rashi adds that this was actually a snowball effect. Because it's really interesting. We have the Mishkan being erected. And in quick succession, the heads of the tribes bring two completely unrelated gifts. One, they bring the ox and the wagons. And then they bring the the 12 days of all the ladles and the basins and the bowls and the animals, the sacrifices. And those two stories are told in, in quick succession. So Rashi says in verse 10 again, that actually they had initially planned to give just the oxen and the wagons to transport the Mishkan. But once they gave it, their hearts were uplifted. They were inspired to give the second gift. Initially, they were planning to give just one gift, but the first gift inspired the second gift. That's the snowball effect. That's the virtuous cycle. They were rebuked. A letter was deducted from their name. They took the lesson home and they said, you know what? We're going to give a gift. And then the first act of generosity inspired the second act of generosity and they are already on their way towards fixing the problem fixing the flaw that they exhibited earlier. Very powerful idea that we discovered in our partial. In general, everyone's unique. Everyone is given a specific mission. And our job, our responsibility is to discover what that is. Discover what our good traits are. Discover what our bad traits are. Take the lesson from what we see My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, woe unto someone who doesn't know their flaws, but double woe unto someone who fails to recognize their strengths. Discover who you are as an individual. You are unique. Once in history, and only if you recognize that, can you fulfill your job, your responsibility. Can you know your name, know why you are here? And maybe we could speculate you know, the Parsha of Nasso is always right after Shavuos. Maybe it's fitting. Right after Shavuos, when the Jewish people accept Torah in general, the 613, all the rules that are uniform for everyone, we have this Parsha that teaches us that it's not enough to subsist on just the 613. There's an imperative for us to be unique and to have a spiritual life and agenda that's tailored to us as individuals. As you mentioned in the past, the takeaway of Shavuos is to recognize that we're unique, we're indispensable, and to stop living generically, to become someone who is extraordinary, someone who is not an average Joe, someone who recognizes this powerful idea. I'm unique. There's a mission entrusted to me and me alone. If I don't do it, no one will. If I fail to recognize that, it's akin to a capital crime. Because I am taking away the life and the uniqueness assigned to me by God. May we all be so fortunate to be able to discover not only the imperative 
of fulfilling the Mani's Torah. He gives us Torah because he wants us to have a better life. He wants us to maximize our time here. He wants to give us absolute, incredible, highest level of pleasures. That's what the Almighty wants from us. And that's why we have Torah. It's the Almighty's recipe for unlocking the most that we can have out of life. But in our parasha, we start with the next level of that. Not only have we been endowed with the Torah in general, each one of us individually have our own letter, so to speak, in Torah, which highlights our own responsibility in Torah. There's this own, so to speak, proverbial beam, board, cover, bar. There's this own part of the transportation of the Mishkan, of the collective spiritual mission of the Jewish people that's entrusted to me and me alone. May we discover what that is, and may we be people that when we are inspected by God, we know our name, we know why we were here, why we were sent here, we know we discovered our qualities, our flaws, and we were able to fulfill our unique mission. My email address is rabbiwalbajim.com. Thank you for listening to the Parsha Podcast. Of course, I encourage everyone to sample some of my other podcasts as well. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your friendship.